by building a small habit and making a little bit of progress toward the desired end state, you now start to have a little bit of evidence to, to hold that belief onto. And now you have a reason to say, yeah, this is actually true. I'm not just being told this. I'm not just being sold something. Um, and so I think ultimately uh, habits are important, not only because they can get us external results. I mean, it is true, like habits can help you earn more money or reduce stress or lose weight or, you know, all that type of stuff. And that's, that's all great. But really habits matter because they're the path through which you forge this new sense of identity, this like self-image about yourself. They're the way that you provide evidence of being that type of person. And um, that I think is a really powerful way and probably the most effective path to actually fostering a growth mindset or a healthier mindset or a more productive mindset um, is by casting these small votes and building up evidence that this is actually the type of person I am. So the first hurdle to cross is to know it's a possibility, but the second hurdle is to, to start to accumulate evidence of it. You were just listening to James Clear from jamesclear.com, an author of a new book called Atomic Habits. Now listen up, everybody. You guys have got to get this book. It's an incredible compilation of so many things, disciplines including biology, neuroscience, psychology, philosophy, some incredible stories to really give you some examples of how to not only break bad habits, but build good habits that last in a format that I've never seen before. He's taken things that I learned from, you know, Charles Duhigg and Carol Dweck and combining it in a way that's very applicable to everybody's life. I wish this book was in the hands of every physician who's talking to their patients about stopping smoking or exercising or eating a healthier diet. So please enjoy the podcast and you guys will not be disappointed. So please click the link below and get this book. Today, I'm so honored to have James Clear. How are you today? Hey, doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. And just to let the audience know, this is an incredible website, jamesclear.com. I stumbled across, but then discovered that you were um, publishing a new book, uh, Atomic Habits. Atomic Habits. And you can get this um, at atomichabits.com with some really cool stuff associated with that. But we'll get into all of that. But you are a specialist in helping people build better habits. You were a student of behavioral change and all these amazing things, which I love. And if you, could you give us a little idea of kind of your personal journey? Cause you describe that in the book, which I find absolutely enthralling. Sure. So the, the introduction of the book talks about my personal story in a little bit more detail. Um, but the short version is that I uh, was an athlete for many years. Um, and uh, at one point, uh, late in my high school career, I had this serious injury where I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. And the uh, fallout and recovery from that, it took quite a while. So I, you know, I fractured both eye sockets, broke my nose, bone behind my nose, um, which is kind of hard to break. It's fairly deep within your skull. Um, multiple seizures. Uh, I was placed into a coma overnight, air cared to the hospital, couldn't breathe on my own. Um, and it took me eight or nine months to recover from that. I mean, I was, couldn't drive. I was, uh, doing very basic stuff. You know, I mean, in my first physical therapy session, we practiced walking in a straight line. So I, um, I, in a sense, my hand was forced. And what I mean by that is I, I didn't really have a choice but to start small because, you know, recovering quickly or having some radical transformation wasn't really an option for me at that point. So I had to just focus on, you know, is there some small way I can make progress today? Or is this, you know, like, what can I, what little thing can I do better? And I didn't really have language for it at that time. Like I, I wouldn't have said, uh, oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better each day or something like that. But uh, effectively, that's what I had to practice at that time in my life. And so uh, by doing that, uh, I ended up recovering and, and um, ultimately four or five years later, uh, had this uh, pretty, what I consider a good baseball career. I ended up being an academic All-American and more or less fulfilling my potential as an athlete. And so through that personal experience, that was kind of the first time when I 
learned what small habits can compound into if you're willing to repeat them for years. And so that experience was kind of sitting in the back of my mind as I uh, moved into what has been the last five or six years of my life as I have launched this business and written more about habits and behavior change and learned more about the science of how behavior works and how peak performance works. And so now Atomic Habits, this book that I just finished, is sort of the merging of those two experiences. It's the merging of practicing some of those things before I, I knew or had the language to describe them and the expertise I've developed over the last five years of writing about habits each week and uh, learning how they work and kind of sharing these science-based, evidence-based ideas for how to build better habits and get better each day. That is really interesting because you were almost forced into a growth mindset, Hmm. right? I mean, I don't know uh, why I responded the way that I did uh, or if, you know, what all the factors that were involved in that, but I did in a sense, just try to find like little ways for me to grow in a positive direction each day. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was a one big factor uh, that helped me recover from the injury and make progress. Wow. So do you think it was the pool of your desire to want to go back to play baseball? Because I have three kids and one of them played on varsity through high school as well. Do you think it's that that desire to to get back on the field? Because you mentioned that in your book. It seemed like it was a very pertinent emotional you know, trigger. So, I mean, I grew up around it. My dad played professional baseball. He was in the minor leagues for the St. Louis Cardinals. And so I think, you know, I always aspired to do something like that myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm certain that was a driver. I also, my personality, t- I kind of have two qualities. Uh, one is that I ask a lot of questions or tend to be curious. Um, and so I, I like to kind of investigate things, just kind of like try to figure out how things work, which I think Im- impacts me a lot in my writing. Um, the second though, is that I guess I would say I'm like an optimizer. Like I like tweaking things and figuring out how to like make something run just a little bit better or uh, perform just a little bit better. And uh, there's nowhere that I like combining those two things more than with my personal life. And so, um, you know, I suffered this injury and I, in that sense, I had some bad luck, uh, but I was still asking questions about, okay, well, what am I capable of now? Or what, you know, where can I go from here? And then each day trying to find those little ways to optimize or improve things um, and make some small step forward. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't think like my story is heroic or legendary or anything. I mean, there are plenty of people who deal with uh, more difficult things, but it's just one example of how, um, a focus on small habits can add up to something much more significant in the long run. I would have to agree though, because um, with my three kids, just coming from what you're describing as a parent, I, I love Carol Dweck and her book, The Mindset, which I'm sure yeah. you're more very familiar with. Uh, but one of my, so two of my kids are super bright, easy to school. One's in medical school now. I got, you know, all, but then there was Jonathan who developed severe dyslexia. So we had to take those small steps with him every single day. And now he's turned into, he's 22, about to graduate college with a, his marketing degree. He is like on fire. He's like you. He just, he does these small things. He's like so habit oriented. And mm-hmm. it's what allowed him to go from, you know, reading first grade level and fourth grade to going to high school without any type of intervention, which was huge for us. So right. I really appreciate that struggle as in your youth, because I, I seen both sides of it. It's amazing. So, well, I mean, that's a big credit to, to you and to him and all the hard work that he put in. But I think that, um, I write about a similar concept later in, in atomic habits, this idea of what I call the Goldilocks rule, but you basically need to stay like on the edge of your ability, right? You're, you need to work on a challenge that's just beyond where you're at right then. And that is one of the most motivating things for the human brain. So if you're, it's, it can be hard to do, you know, especially in daily life, uh, it's not always easy to stay right on the cusp of what is difficult or what is, uh, what is possible for you. But it, because you, it's not just about challenging yourself. You also need like enough wins to stay motivated. Um, but if you can manage to do that, you can sort of like fan the flame of curiosity a little bit. Uh, you mm. can get more excited because you have, I mean, one of the most addicting feelings is the feeling of progress. And mm. so if you feel like you're making this headway, then you have a reason to continue each time. And um, yeah, so absolutely. that's one way to, to implement that. And it sounds like he may have done a good job of that as well. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things, the factors that played into that, just, just speaking for parents out there who are struggling with kids with learning disabilities or whatever is if he found an interest in something, like we jumped on it. If there was a book series that I don't care what reading level it was, if he enjoyed it, 
we bought the whole series. <laughs> and we would sit down and we would read it and we would talk about it so that comprehension would build. And so I think that's exactly right. Whatever I could do to fan the flame, mm-hmm. not even realizing what I was doing, but that's really cool. So I think that's right. I, I did listen to the Goldilocks rule and it, it's just like you said, you're trying to get into that flow state, right. which is really cool. So then a big part of the book is regarding, you know, the four laws of habit change. And I really like it because you take a a little, you know, take the the work of Charles Duhigg and the power of habit, which I found ultimately amazing for my brain as a physician, helping patients find healthier habits, which have life altering changes Mm. Um, for me. That's really, that's my craving is to help them get back because they're like, oh, yes. Better. Um, can you talk about that? Because it, it's we can. I mean, you could probably talk to days about this, but just kind of summarize it. And we can dive into that a little bit. So the way that I think about it is, I divide uh, a habit, and really, I think you could divide most human behaviors into these four stages. And um, as you progress through the these four stages, and it can happen like in an instant. Um, I'll give you some examples in a moment. Um, the each stage has what I call a law of behavior change associated with it. And you can think of these laws kind of like levers. And when the levers are in the right positions, it's easier to build good habits. And when they're in the wrong positions, well, it's really hard to build a good habit. And so they're kind of like tools in your toolbox. And depending on what challenge you're facing at the time, you can select the right tool and you know move the lever in the right position. And it becomes easier to, to get a habit to stick. So Broadly speaking, the framework that I use for uh, understanding how habits work and how human behavior works is that there's some type of cue, which I would just describe as like raw data or some some bit of information that catches your attention. Um, humans are very visual creatures, so often the cue is visual, but it doesn't have to be. It could be any of the five senses. Um, so uh, the second stage is there's a craving, and the craving is about how you interpret the cue. So it's kind of like your prediction of what to do next based on this raw data that you just took in. Um, And I'll give some concrete examples of this in a second. The uh, next stage is that based on that interpretation, you take some kind of response or some kind of action, and that's the habit itself. And then finally, that habit or action delivers an outcome. And uh, that's what we could call the reward. And the reward is the fourth stage. And if a, if a behavior is rewarding, then you have a reason to repeat it again in the future. Um, and so the reward is actually a really crucial part to getting habits to stick because if a behavior is satisfying, it's kind of like a positive emotional signal to your brain where it says, hey, this felt good. Like you should do this again next time. Uh, but if you lack that, if there's either a, like a very wide gap in the, the reward or the feeling of satisfaction and it takes too long, then you know, it's kind of like the feedback loop doesn't get closed. Or if a behavior just isn't very satisfying uh, in itself, then uh, you don't have much reason to repeat it again as well. So the example that you just gave um, about your son and like you know, if the, he was really into a book series or something, this is a really good strategy for building habits, especially early on, um, is that just do the version of the habit that is most satisfying to you. You know, like if you're trying to build the habit of reading, well, read whatever is interesting to you um, because if it's satisfying and enjoyable, you have a reason to repeat it again. And then once the habit of reading is built, well, then maybe you can think more about like, what should I be focusing on or where should I direct my attention? Um, same thing with exercise. You know, like there's the habit of exercise can be done in many different ways. You could lift weights, but you could also kayak or rock climb or go hiking or take a daily walk or do yoga. I mean, there's like a million things. So do the version that is most satisfying to you. um, And that'll be the one that's most likely to stick. And then once it sticks and you become the type of person who exercises every week, then you have options and you can start thinking about other, other ways to improve that. Um, So broadly speaking, we have those four stages, cue, craving, response, reward. And the four laws of behavior change, uh, each one influences um, one stage. So the first law is to make it obvious so that you want the cues of your good habits to be as obvious as possible. So they catch your attention and prompt you to act. The second law is to make it attractive. So if a behavior or an action is more attractive to you, then you'll be more likely to perform it. Um, So again, this is about that prediction that your brain makes based on the cue. And then the third law is to make it easy. So the easier a habit is, the less friction that is associated with it, the less difficulty that is associated with it, the more convenient it is, the more likely you're going to perform that action. Um, you know, Think about how convenient it is to pull out your phone and tap on the Instagram icon. 
Uh, it requires almost no effort. And so because it is so easy, we find ourselves doing it all the time. Um, and then the fourth law is to make it satisfying. And I already talked about this a little bit, but the more satisfying a behavior is, the more reason you have to perform it. And if you want to break a bad habit, you can just invert each of these four laws. So um, to make a good habit or to build a good habit, you want to make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy and make it satisfying. To break a bad habit, you want to make it diff or you want to make it invisible, make it unattractive, make it difficult and make it unsatisfying. And um, by doing those things, you're effectively putting those four levers that I mentioned in the right positions and making it easier to, to perform the habits that you want. That, <laughs> so there's so much here. <laughs> First of all, I've been listening to your audiobook, So it's so funny that now I'm listening to you talk to me. It's just like, you've been in my head for the last, <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm just constantly thinking about it. Um, that is really interesting because I know when I read The Power of Habit, Charles Duhag, he kind of goes through, he talks about the habit loop. Um, but he doesn't, I mean, gives a little bit of advice on how to do this. So I was working with patients because I work a lot with nutrition and helping them lose weight and reverse their chronic disease. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I brought out that habit loop and I explained just how he did, I mean, patients were like, whoa, that's wow. But then I was, we were trying to figure out how to utilize each section. So I was focused on that process because, you know, the cruise was going to be there regardless of what it is. Mm -hmm. Something's going to be there. Um, but it's that, that routine, but what you do, you make it so simple. Like I, for my, apparently my brain can not figure that out. So, I mean, I'm, this is brilliant. I don't know. I'm, I'm like um, one of your biggest raving fans. Like I'm, I don't know if I could go much more than that, but, um, but the, well, that was one of my main goals in writing the book, uh, yeah. is that I thought Duhigg did a good job of explaining how a habit works. Um, but we need to have an understanding of how to apply that. So it was, it was more like a, his book was maybe why and less how it was like, why do habits happen? And this is the process. And my book focuses on being, well, I hope both, but certainly highly practical, a lot about the how, okay, how do we do something about the, how do we shape a habit now that we understand how it works? And I think that that's what the four laws of behavior change do well, is they give us a, a format or a framework for making those practical changes, whether it's building a good habit or breaking a bad one. No, I think the, your, your storytelling and the hooks with the stories and the examples that you share are right on the simplicity of it. And then the application is definitely there. So that's why I started this podcast for two years. I've been, <laughs> I would talk to people, they lost 200 pounds, you know, I'm like, how did you do it? That was always the how, cause I was searching for that. You know, I have bookshelves and bookshelves of behavior psychology and positive psychology and, you know, the genetics of change. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And I would even, you know, I'm an MBA, so I'm studying marketing and like, what is it that they're hitting that's allowing that? Because physicians should be, we need to become better salesmen of lifestyle intervention to help with chronic disease. So what's really cool is what you, what you've outlined, I think would be very useful in the field of medicine and just helping physicians become better physicians and teaching their patients these type of things. So I'm really excited about this, as you can tell. But anyway, could you give us one example of maybe like a smoking or your eating or exercise on how maybe you would see someone taking, you know, trying to build that good habit and then maybe breaking a bad habit as well sure. in a general sense? Yeah. So let's just talk through a few like concrete examples of what this looks like. Um, so first, just let me give you a couple examples of like those four stages that I talked about and why I think each stage is important and should be included in like our understanding. So um, just take the process of turning on the lights when you walk into a room. Uh, so you walk into a room, it's dark. So the cue is that it's dark. You're picking up this raw information, this bit of information from the environment. Uh, it's too dark to see. The craving is I want to be able to see. I want to reduce uncertainty. I want to know what's in the room. Um, and that, so your prediction then that you make in that second stage is if I flip on the light switch, then I will be able to see and reduce this uncertainty. And it's actually that prediction that drives you to take the action. So the third stage response, you flip on the lights. And then the fourth stage reward, the room is lit up. Now you can see. And 
all of that happens in you know a fraction of a second, right? We don't even think about that. But this process, all four stages, you're proceeding through those endlessly throughout your day. You know, you're kind of you're always taking in information, making a prediction about what it means, and interpreting how you should act based on your past experiences and your current circumstances. Um, when it comes to habits, then we have questions like, well, how come someone can form a habit and then they stick to it for a while? But then at like a different point, they just, they stop doing it for some reason, like it fades away. And here again, the four stages can be useful or insightful. So, you know, let's say for example, that you walk into the kitchen and you see a plate of cookies. So the cue is that you have this visual cue of the plate of cookies. Um, usually maybe your habit is you uh, predict then, oh, if I eat the cookie, it'll be tasty, right? It'll be sugary. I'll enjoy it. Um, so then you walk over, you eat the cookie, the response, and then the reward is it's tasty and sugary and sweet right then. Um, however, you could just as easily imagine a situation where your current state is different. Like let's say you just finished eating dinner in the other room and you had a couple cookies in there and then you walk into the kitchen and you see a plate of cookies uh, with some more of them on the plate. And now your interpretation might be different. Same visual cue, you see the cookie, but your current state is I'm stuffed, I'm not hungry. Um, and so you think, oh, I don't want to eat anything right now. Like I'm, you know, I'm full. So then you take a different response, you avoid the cookies and so on. Um, and the same kind of thing can happen with uh, the fading away of a good habit. So let's say that you're in the habit of at 5 p.m., I finish work and then I go to the gym. So the cue might be finishing work. The um, craving is, well, if I go to the gym, then I'll get in shape and I'll expect that'll benefit me. So I should go there. So you drive to the gym, you do the workout, and then the reward is you get the benefits of exercise and so on. But at some point, um, maybe work gets really busy or you get sick or you have to go to your kid's recital or something like that. Um, and so the same cue arises. It's 5 p.m. again, but your prediction is different. Now you predict, well, if I go to the gym, I'll miss my kid's recital. And so like, that's not worth the trade-off. So I'm going to skip the gym and I'll go to the recital instead. Um, or I'm feeling under the weather today. And if I go to the gym, I'll push it too hard and I'll just wear myself down. So I should go home and rest. Um, and that's typically what happens when a habit starts to fade away is our prediction or interpretation of the cue changes. And so we don't, we no longer find the habit as attractive as we did before. And so you need to find ways to, to change that. And we can talk about a bunch of uh, examples there. But, okay, so that gives you us kind of an understanding of how those uh, different daily behaviors map onto those four stages. Mm. So let me give you uh, two concrete examples of how we could apply the four laws of behavior change to both build a good habit and break a bad habit. So for building a good habit, uh, for many years, I would brush my teeth um, twice a day, but I wouldn't floss consistently. And so if I went and looked at that behavior, there were the, the first law of behavior change and the third law of behavior change were the two that uh, ended up helping me out. So what happened was I would go into the bathroom and uh, I realized, oh, well, the floss is in a drawer in the bathroom. And so I just don't see it a lot of the time. Like I don't even think about it. Um, and then the second issue sounds kind of silly, but I didn't like the feeling of wrapping the floss around my fingers. Um, so what I did was I bought some of the pre-made flossers and I put them in a little bowl and I put that bowl right next to my toothbrush. So number one, make it obvious. First law of behavior change, uh, take it out of the drawer and put it right on the counter. Third law of behavior change, make it easy. So rather than having to wrap it around my fingers and deal with the discomfort or whatever, just buy the pre-made flosser and it's done. So now I just brush my teeth, put the toothbrush down, pick the flosser up, floss them, and then I'm done. Now I do it twice a day and I've done that for a few years now. And that was really all I needed to do to change that habit was to kind of pull on those two levers. Um, now let's look at an example of breaking a bad habit. So, you know, a lot of people feel like they watch too much TV or too much Netflix or play too many video games. Um, but if you walk into pretty much any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? They all face the television. So it's like, what is that room designed to get you to do? Um, and there are varying degrees that you could uh, that you could adjust things. So you could take a chair and turn it away from the TV. You could um, take the remote control and put it inside like a drawer or in the coffee table or something like that. You could take the television itself and put it inside like a wall unit or a cabinets so that it's behind doors. And all of those are ways of uh, employing the first law of behavior change, but inverting it, right? Make it invisible. You want to make it less obvious to see the TV or to look at the remote control or whatever. You also could uh, 
employ the inversion of the third law. So rather than make it easy, you want to make it difficult. So, you know, what if you took the batteries out of the remote control each time? And so now it takes like an extra five to 10 seconds to turn the TV on. And maybe that's enough time for you to be like, well, do I really want to watch this or am I just turning it on mindlessly? Um, you could unplug the TV after each use and then only plug it back in if you can say the name of the show that you want to watch out loud. So you aren't allowed to just like mindlessly browse Netflix and find something. <laughs> um, and if you really wanted to be extreme about it, you could just take the TV off the wall and put it in the closet and only take it out and set it up when you really wanted to watch something. But the key point here is that you, what you want to do is increase the number of steps between you and the bad behaviors. So increase the friction, uh, make it difficult in version of the third law, or you want to reduce the number of steps between you and the good behaviors. So reduce friction, make it easy. And um, by doing that, any one individual change, making a, a good option slightly more obvious or slightly easier is not going to radically transform things. But imagine the difference between living or working in a space where you have a dozen or 50 or 100 little choices like that that are all kind of nudging you toward the good choice and away from the bad one. And it's much easier to stick to good habits if you're in an environment like that rather than trying to muster up the willpower to work hard and overpower your environment each day. You know, speaking of willpower, I don't, we don't even have a television. We haven't had one in two years. Yeah. It's been great. Yeah. So if we want to, you know, if my husband wants to go watch the playoffs or something, we actually have to make the effort to go somewhere to someone's house who actually has it. Um, it's been good because he would come home and sit in front of the television for hours, um, but now he's going to do other things. So I'm like, it sounds kind of extreme to some people, but it actually is a great heuristic for making decisions. It's like, well, if you don't care enough about this game to drive 10 minutes to like the local bar to watch it or a restaurant or a friend's house, then how much do you really care about it? So <laughs> exactly. uh, is, is it really worth three hours of your time if you're not going to give that up? So mm -hmm. um, we are largely um, many of the things that we want are just a response to what we're surrounded by. Mm. And so if you can structure your environment so that you're surrounded by better choices, you often find that it's much easier to stick with them in the long run. That is absolutely true. I also want to, you brought out a very interesting word willpower, right? So I used to think when I started this whole, it's kind of like what we describe as lifestyle medicine. So there's actually American College of Lifestyle Medicine where we focus on lifestyle intervention, which is basically what you're describing. It's behavior modification to improve your life mm. and doing that. So um, it's really, really fascinating. They, you know, it's about nutrition. It's about the best nutrition, but it's all, honestly, it's like you described, it's behavior. That's all it is. Because it doesn't matter if you know all the facts, if you don't employ them, it's not right. good. So, um, but the willpower, so when I first started, I thought willpower was like it. Like some people just have more grit. They just have more, you know, to get through it. Because I started medical school with three little kids. Um, they were five, three, and 10 months when I started school, medical school. And some people are like, how did you do that? I was like, I don't know. I just wanted it so bad. I think mm -hmm. that was my thing. But I just did, like you said, small habits. Like I'd study here when I could. I'd do different things to make it more enjoyable and stick to my brain. Looking back, what you're describing, what is it about willpower? Can you describe willpower and its finiteness? I guess you want to say its finite ability, and it's not about necessarily willpower. It's 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 something you're creating your environment to, for success. Can you describe that and explain? Sure. So in the book, I have a, a chapter that I call the secret self control, and um, so first of all, I should say like I I, ha I do feel I've developed an expertise around habits and behavior change. I don't consider my expert uh, to be myself to be an expert on willpower specifically or grid or something like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, from my understanding of it and from the research that I've done, what I have concluded is that those qualities willpower, grit, perseverance um, they're important. Self control. It's not that it's not that they don't matter. Um, however. There's an interesting body of research on self-control and willpower that show that the people who exhibit the highest degrees or highest levels of willpower are not necessarily that different from the people who exhibit low levels of self-control. It's just that they live and work in environments where they are tempted less often. And so occasionally when they are tempted, they have the resources and energy uh, available to resist. So. Uh, the punchline of this is not that willpower doesn't matter or self-control doesn't matter, but that the way to the most effective way to increase or improve your willpower and self-control 
is not by trying harder, but by designing an environment that is more suited to uh, the things that you want to accomplish. So one simple punchline of this is that the first inversion of the first law, make it invisible. I mean, this is why it works so well. If you reduce exposure to the cues that prompt you to perform these negative habits, then suddenly it see, it feels like you get a willpower boost. Um, you know, like if you want to, if you want to eat fewer calories, well, don't follow food blogs on Instagram all day long because you're just constantly having to resist the pull of that. Um, if you want to spend less money on electronics or the latest tech gear, then don't follow all these tech review blogs or, you know, like YouTubers who are doing unboxing videos and looking at the, the latest technology um, because you're constantly going to be tempted to, to have to resist that. Um, if you can reduce exposure to the negative cues in your life, then suddenly your willpower is much more present for the few times that um, you are faced with that. And I think the the way that I like to summarize this is that it's not that you can never resist uh, negative cues, but I have almost never seen someone consistently stick to positive habits in a negative environment. If you you can do it for a day or a week, but if you have to overcome the pull of your environment every month, that's just a lot to ask yourself. Um, and it's much easier to stick with that if you're aligned, if your environment is aligned with your um, with the habits that you want to build. Hmm. And it's interesting how I think some people just fall into that and they're lucky and for, you know, you, you speak a little bit about luck and fortune and success too, which, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I could certainly, when you look back into people like, oh, you're just lucky you were born into a family and this and that, and they just assume because of your success that you've always had it easy that, you know, things are handed for you. But when you tell them a story of like, no, actually I came from teen parents, they didn't finish college or high school and, you know, they work hard and, you know, you hear these amazing stories. Like, I don't know, you know, Dr. Rich Carmona is one of our surgeon generals. Mm. He was homeless at one point when he was a child. He didn't even finish high school. He got his GED. And those are the type of people that you're just sitting back and going, how did they do it? So I think that's where some of the grit and perseverance and what you're describing, but they set themselves up because they're like, I, they believe that they could be something, right? So that's kind of what I like about this too, is that you're employing that mindset growth, you know, the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. And I know you had a, a section on parenting and I didn't get a chance to listen to that, but I'd love to talk to you about it because I think Carol Dweck with her work with kids, what was interesting <clears throat> And I, and I look back and just being a parent myself that the kids are in their twenties now, but if I would have employed those more of those things, if I didn't know now, the, the kids are doing great, but still you think, God, I could have been a better parent, but you're just sitting here going, wow, if I would have just allowed them to have that growth mindset, it's like, yeah, well, let's focus on that process. You're not there yet versus mm -hmm. good job. You made it. You ran, came in first in that race when you were five years old. <laughs> So they build this fixed mindset of that I'm always going to reward based on the outcome. Is there, can you describe a little bit about what's in your chapter as, as far as applying to parenting? Because I know you also have a section on business, applying it to business, but I think parenting would be something more immediate that my audience would be, or even, I think parenting, almost being a physician is somewhat like being parenting because you're helping people find that. You're like, yeah. take your medicine, do this. What, what would you, what is your, your nuggets there? Well, so I'll talk about two things. Um, parenting is a very big topic and also like being the parent of an infant or a toddler is a very different set of challenges than parenting a teenager or something like that. So, um, the, the strategies may vary, uh, based on, you know, where you're at in the parenting cycle. But, um, so for young kids, make it obvious is a really helpful thing. And you can see this just by how efficiently a lot of kindergarten classrooms run. Um, so a lot of the time they will color code things, you know, like you're in the blue reading group and you're in the green reading group and so on. And then that group has like a set of green bins that are hold the books in the corner and, you know, and, um, each, all the toys have like a particular shelf that they go on. Everything has a place. And all of that is just a way to make it obvious what to grab or what to do or where to place it. And so you can utilize some of those uh, similar strategies in your the designing of your home or like how you ask your kids to put toys away or how you ask them to, you know, like clean up and where to put their plate and things like that. Um, the more that you can label stuff and give everything like a home, um, the easier it becomes to develop a habit associated with doing that action. Um, so that's one way to employ like the, the first law, make it obvious. 
But the the conversation that you just mentioned about like growth mindset and things like that, like where, where does all that fit in with uh, with habit formation? And if we take one of the classic examples of uh, growth mindset, just consider like giving a student, I don't know, a seventh grader or something like a difficult math problem. Um, and one student gets it and they think, oh, I'm bad at math. And so they like have this fixed mindset. They have no reason to try on it. Um, or even a student that thinks uh, I'm good at math, but then they try that problem and they can't get it. And so then they just give up. Um, whereas another student who may have the growth oriented mindset where they think I work hard at math or something like that, or I put effort in um, or all problems can be solved or something along that line. Um, well, then they see the same problem and they may struggle with it in the same way, but they have a reason to continue working because of how they interpret that cue. And so if we want to map it onto those four stages, we could say the problem itself, once it's placed in front of the student, is the cue or the prompt. Um, and the mindset is, has to do with the craving, has to do with how they interpret that cue. And this is true uh, not just with uh, growth mindset, but also just in society in general. You know, like you can imagine... Um, Two different people can watch the same news story and maybe one is a conservative and one is a liberal and it's the same cue, but they interpret it in very different ways based on um, what their mindset is or what their set of beliefs are, or what their self-image is and so on. And so as a result, they come to a different conclusion or take a different action, uh, similar to how two students, one with a growth mindset, and one with a fixed mindset might respond very differently to the same problem. Um, and so this gives us a little bit of insight into the connection between habits and beliefs and how beliefs and mindset can shape our actions, it often interfaces in that second stage, right? We all are going through life and we're experiencing these cues coming across this raw data, these external circumstances, but our interpretation of those circumstances changes based on the beliefs that we have um, and based on how we identify. And so uh, that's kind of the, the key area there. And perhaps the, um, the takeaway for parents when they think about how to apply this to their kids is that what you're really looking to do is not to necessarily protect your child from the external cues of the world, but to give them a set of tools for interpreting those cues in the most productive or most healthy way, for giving them um, the ability to foster a mindset that allows them to respond to those in a healthy way. Um, and so that's maybe where a lot of the work there can be done. I think that's brilliant. So one of my favorite stories, I've been trying to meet Carol Dweck someday, I will, um, is she spoke to, um, they, they were thinking they were doing a study on kids and they were about, you know, middle school age. And she, um, they took the two groups, the two cohorts, and one of them, they gave um, just the study habits. This is how you study. That was it. That's kind of mm -hmm. their control group. And then they had, this other group and these were both low performing groups so they were already deemed trouble with school learning disabilities whatever this other group they taught them the same study skills but then they understood they taught them about brain plasticity right so they're like hey your brain is growing the more you put into it you can build more neuron new pathways you get smarter your intelligence is not a finite thing you're not just born as smart as whatever and she said during that process of that education and explanation there was a little boy who was about 10 or 11 and he started crying and she's like they asked him why are you crying he goes you don't mean i have to be stupid anymore so it was so powerful of an impact on the belief that he didn't have to believe that anymore because someone gave him the permission to think something different. So right. I think that is kind of what you're doing here. You're giving us the tools to believe something different. And so I think that's in my profession as a physician, that is our goal, right? Is this, It's not necessarily a salesman of a better thing, but it's like I'm giving you the permission by speaking this, say, there's a different future than one with chronic disease, obesity, diabetes, and all these things. And it's so rewarding to people because they thought they're they're told the cultural norm is that you have to be sick. You know, you're you're seeing commercials with drugs and go talk to your doctor about this, or do you have this? Or, you know, I think a good example is menopause. They they've you know made menopause something evil and that it should be treated. And I'm like, that's just a normal course of life. <laughs> you know, so then you take medications and you have run those risk factors of that. So that's just one opinion or of my opinion of that, but that's, that's a really interesting thing. How you done it. I think beliefs are very, very important. You also so, 
beginning. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, we can we can tie this back into it's um, into habits in general, and mm-hmm. um, and it provides like a little bit of an insightful uh, look into how do we change those beliefs or how do we develop a new identity? How do you go from fixed mindset to growth mindset? How do you go from someone who identifies as I'm sick or being sick is normal to I'm healthy? And uh, part of it is the introduction or permission of that new belief, which you just uh, described. Part of it is just knowing that that's possible. That 10-year-old boy didn't know that that was an option. Um, And so that can be powerful in itself. Um, But this is why one of the reasons why habits are so important is that in a sense, I write about this in the second chapter of the book, this idea that I call like identity-based habits. But in a sense, habits are like, um, they're how you embody a particular identity, right? So like each day that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized, or whenever you go to the gym, you embody the identity of someone who's fit. And so you can sort of think of your behaviors, your habits as like each action is a vote for the type of person that you want to become. And as you start to cast these votes, you build up evidence of being that type of person. And as the evidence accumulates and the votes build up, you have a reason uh, to believe that about yourself. You have something to root the uh, identity or that belief in. And I think that that's actually incredibly important because often people will say things like fake it till you make it or something like that. But fake it till you make it is asking you to hold on to a belief that you don't have evidence for. Um, And there's a word for beliefs that we don't have evidence for. It's delusion. Um, You know, like at some point, the brain doesn't like that. Um, And so if you... tell somebody, oh, it's, it's possible to be that type of person so you don't have to be sick, for example. Um, that's very appealing, and they may believe that for a little bit, but if they don't start to accumulate evidence that they're making progress and moving in the right direction, then it feels like they're just being lied to. And so this is where habits are so useful, because, and small habits in particular, because by building a small habit, and making a little bit of progress toward the desired end state, you now start to have a little bit of evidence to, to hold that belief onto. And now you have a reason to say, yeah, this is actually true. I'm not just being told this. I'm not just being sold something. Um, and so I think ultimately uh, habits are important, not only because they can get us external results. I mean, it is true. Like habits can help you earn more money or reduce stress or lose weight or, you know, all that type of stuff. And that's, that's all great. But really habits matter because they're the path through which you forge this new sense of identity, this like self-image about yourself. They're the way that you provide evidence of being that type of person. And um, that I think is a really powerful way and probably the most effective path to actually fostering a growth mindset or a healthier mindset or a more productive mindset um, is by casting these small votes and building up evidence that this is actually the type of person I am. So the first hurdle to cross is to know it's a possibility, but the second hurdle is to, to start to accumulate evidence of it. That's actually where I was leading was back in the book. You, you talk about the stacking those small habits and it has the evidence. So you can anchor this new belief into the, you have evidence. I right. mean, there it is. And I have a really cool example is that um, I used to run a lifestyle medicine clinic when I lived in Colorado and there was one patient she was just, it was so phenomenal. At the end of our 12-week course, we'd walk them through healthy habits and eating and everything. And she was always struggling with her weight, but then she lost 40 pounds. And so we always get asked everyone to share their testimonial because that was part of that inspiration and motivation for the next group. And she goes, you know, I used to go on and try on dresses and I would cry and I'd leave because I felt so you know ugly and unhappy in them. She goes, but just last week, she was because I was going to a wedding and I walked in there and I tried on three dresses and I think I look good. And I left out of there just feeling amazing. <laughs> she had this new belief because she saw all the evidence of stacking up over 12 weeks. You know, she's lost 40 right. pounds. She said her relationship with her husband and better. She was being a better parent. She had more energy. She had come off meds. So that's what it's kind of like then is that ripple effect, which is really cool. I mean, it's one thing to say I'm the type of person who wants this, but it's something very different to say I'm the type of person who is this. And mm-hmm. small habits give you a reason to believe that, hey, this is who I am. Um, you know, if you can, 
even if you do something simple, you know, like uh, you want to get in shape. And so you do five push-ups a day or five sit-ups a day or something like that. And you do that for uh, 10 days out of the last month and you put an X on the calendar each time you do it. Well, now at the end of the month, you can look at the calendar and you actually have like visual evidence that this is the type of identity that you were building. And that's um, something much more powerful than just saying like, yeah, I'm going to be different. It'll be different this time. Or I'll work hard or, you know, I'm, I'm going to get in shape or whatever. Because that kind of goes back to the, that was the um, example you described about the young man who made those sales calls, right? So right. take one paper clip and put it in the jar. And that was that visual cue, again, of your success, reminding you of that, and then built the crate. It's brilliant. Um, can you go back to just, I know we're pushing into the hour, um, but what a habit contract is, because I think that could be really powerful too, and just mention that. Sure. So, um this is sort of an example of uh, the fourth law of behavior change or the inversion of the fourth law. Like you're kind of making it unsatisfying to break this contract uh, or to, to not do what you fall through on. So a habit contract is, um, it was interesting the first time I came across it, I hadn't heard about someone doing it in this formal of a way. But um, anyway, this guy wanted to get in shape and lose some weight. And so he made a contract between himself, his wife, and uh, this personal trainer that he hired. And he wrote down, you know, what his goals were, uh, specifically how much he wanted to weigh in at in the long run, and then what he what habits he was going to perform each day that were going to help that. So whether it was like measuring his calories or tracking his weight on the scale or making sure they did his workout, and he wrote out in very specific. I think there were like three particular habits that he was. Uh, um, contractually obligated to perform over the course of uh, three months. So he did it each quarter. So he wrote all that out, what his goal was, what the three habits were, and then he signed it, his wife signed it, and his trainer signed it. And he came up with punishments for each one. So if he didn't uh, track his calories, for example, then his wife got to spend $500 however she wanted. Or if he didn't um, go to, if he didn't track his, uh, go to his workout or track his weight, then um, his trainer would get like a hundred bucks from him or something like that. And so uh, by having both the accountability, the punishment, and the signature from all three people, he said actually the signature was the thing that like made it most real for him. Um, so anyway, he, uh, he did that and it ended up working. He stuck to it. Uh, he lost the weight and uh, he's continued now. He continues to do it uh, each, um, each quarter. And now he's shifted his focus from weight loss to strength gain. He's kind of at his ideal weight now and he's just trying to get in better shape. So, um, but the, the habit contract is maybe overly formal for some habits. I don't think it's necessary for all of them. Like you probably don't need a, a habit contract for brushing your teeth or something like that. Um, but for a few of the key areas in life that are really important to you, whether it's, you know, writing that book that you want to finish or getting in shape or, um, you know, sticking to some kind of uh, meditation habit or so whatever area is, is an important one for you right now, it might be worth it to put the extra effort in and come up with a contract like that to keep yourself on track. That's brilliant. And you also mentioned um, the accountability part partners, right? That's so key. They had his wife and then his personal right. trainer. I had heard someone before also kind of a similar thing where they would say there there was a charity or some type of cause or organization that they just couldn't stand. Like they just went against their belief system. Yeah. Like if they feel they had this automatic donation to it. I'm like, there are a variety of uh, online tools that will allow you to do that. Uh, oh. One's called Beeminder. Another one's called Stick. I think it's S-T-I-C-K-K.com. But uh, anyway, yeah, they'll let you place a bet effectively and you'll, you know, you'll pay a hundred dollars in and they will just hold it. And if you stick to your goal, then your friend can release the money and uh, it'll come back to you. But if you don't stick to the habit, then uh, the hundred dollars will go to a charity you hate or something like that. So your friend has to release it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have the power to get it back yourself. <laughs> That's even better. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, that was so amazing. I have a few minutes left. Is there, I always like to ask our guests if there's one bit of advice um, that you would feel would be like the true golden nugget, not necessarily what we talked about today, but anything with habit formation or, you know, someone's thinking about this. Yeah, I really want to do this. Where should I go? What should I start or anything? What do you find like is the one, because I know you coach a lot of people while well, a lot of people have gone through your academy and different things. What is that one thing that you feel is like you see this common denominator or something like that? What is that one piece of advice? 
Sure. Well, you know, I mean, obviously Atomic Habits is uh, goes, is a, the most comprehensive discussion of this and goes through all the different uh, ways that you can change a habit and uh, where those practical um, kind of levers are that you can pull and where to focus. But uh, I usually like to recommend that people start with one simple thing, which is what I call the two-minute rule. Um, and so the idea is just take whatever habit you're looking to build and scale it down into the first two minutes. You know, most people have heard something like, oh, you should take small steps or you should keep it easy or something like that before. But even if you know that you should start small, it's still really easy to start too big. So, um, you know, take the habit of like going for a run after work or something. Most people might say, all right, you know, I want to build a habit of going for a run a few days a week, but I know I should start small. So I'll just run for 15 minutes. But even that is way bigger than what I'm talking about. Um, it should be able to fit within two minutes or less. So it should be something like I put on my running shoes and I step out the door and lock the door. And that's actually the habit. Um, anything else that happens after that, if you run at all, then it's just a bonus. And sometimes that sounds like a this like mental trick to people. They think like, well, you know, I know the real goal isn't to just put my running shoes on. I know the real goal is to go for a run. So like why, you know, why, if I know it's a trick, why did I fall for it? Mm. But if you feel that way, my encouragement would be to force yourself to only do the first two minutes for a few weeks. Um, I actually had a reader who did this. He, uh, he had a version of it. So he ended up losing over 100 pounds. And one of the things that he did was he went to the gym, but he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would show up, he'd do like half an exercise, uh, five minutes would be up, and then he'd leave. And he did this for like six weeks. And um, it's the exact opposite of how so many people go about trying to get in shape or build a new habit with fitness. But the reason that it worked, the reason that it was so effective is that he was mastering the art of showing up. Um, and so often we don't realize that a habit has to be established before it can be improved. If you don't master the art of showing up, if you don't make it the standard in your life, there's nothing to optimize anyway, because you're not there each day. And so once he became the type of person who was always going to the gym each day or each week, he had every reason in the world to be like, well, you know, how can I expand or improve this? And that's exactly how I felt after like six weeks. He was like, well, I'm coming here all the time. Like I might as well stay longer or start doing something <laughs> a little bit more impressive. But the two minute rule can help you do that. Scale it down to just the first two minutes, focus on mastering the art of showing up. And then once you standardize it, then you can optimize it. Uh, and that I would say is a good place to start for pretty much any habit. I would say that is excellent advice because you're finally, I, th I think mastering the art of showing up, you stop breaking the contract with yourself. So that, that builds belief in yourself too, which is really cool and confidence. So I will have to say your book, your framework, the way you have it, a lot of my readers, I don't know if you're familiar with The Pleasure Trap by Dr. Doug Lyle, and then The Mindset Book by Dr. Carl Dweck, and then The the power of habit by Charles Duke, which all are some of my favorite books. Yours combines them and makes it, this is the guidebook. So the practical application, which is honestly, again, phenomenal. So people I'm telling you go buy the book. It's at atomichabits.com. I'll put the link and you would be crazy not to buy it and follow and go to their secret stuff too. You said mentioned there's bonuses and other things too. Yeah. So the book is at atomichabits.com. And if you go there, there's, um, there's a secret chapter that's not included in the final books. So you can get that. Um, there are chapter by chapter audio commentary guides from me. So why I wrote a chapter and what some of the research is behind it and what I was thinking. Um, the variety of workbooks and templates for implementing some of the ideas. And then um, also some of the bonus chapters and appendices, like how to apply the ideas to parenting or how to apply the ideas to business. Um, anyway, all of that stuff is available at atomichabits.com. Awesome. Atomichabits.com. And thank you again so much for your time. I so appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You bet.